0: Hey everybody, how's it going? I'm Chase. Welcome to another episode of The Show. The Show, it's you and me, and today it's you and me, and it's Ryan Holiday. Ryan, this is his second time on The Show. He's an author and a media strategist. Uh, His career in marketing started... I think at at age 19, when he dropped out of college to go work with Robert Greene, the amazing author, Robert Greene, who wrote 48 Laws of Power, uh, The 50th Law, uh, Mastery. Robert's been super influential in my career. And Ryan went to work with him at a very young age, and he soon found his way to become the director of marketing for American Apparel, super, at like 20 years old. And if you remember, American Apparel had this meteoric rise, uh, and a lot of that is due to Ryan's work hacking media hacking popular culture to get American peril in headlines. Gosh, through a couple of takeaways from this show, especially relevant to our community uh, is that good marketing isn't just about the creative output. It isn't just about taking good pictures or writing. it's it's about so much more and it's about making work that starts a discussion. And so embedded in your life's work, is a certain marketing um, angle that it's your job to figure out, and Ryan does such an eloquent job of helping us understand that. He's helped me. Uh, he's helped Creative Live. And you're also going to get a crash course in Stoic philosophy. I think a lot of you guys know that my background. I studied philosophy in school, so I gravitate towards people that have a very philosophical approach. And Ryan uh, has really aligned himself with Stoic philosophy, which is is powerful in that it's all about mindset. Uh, How do you use your mindset to propel not just your creative output and creative endeavors, but how to overcome challenges, control your perception, take action, I think you get the point. Another takeaway, let's see, um, a couple questions that you should ask yourself before starting any creative project. This comes out of Ryan's most recent book called Perennial Seller, which is, are you making work and have you thought about who this is for? And have you thought about what does it do for those people and if you're not thinking about that in parallel when you're making your work you're missing out on a huge opportunity Um, thinking long term about the kind of impact you have I talk about building with the end in mind but of course Ryan is infinitely more eloquent than my brutish way of thinking and you will get a lot out of this so with that let's get into the show but before we do a quick word from our sponsor this episode of Chase Jarvis Live show is brought to you by Creative Live. Creative Live is the world's largest and best platform for creative and entrepreneurial education. And right now you're saying, "Wait a minute, isn't that the company that you started?" Yes, it is. It is my company, but they make this show possible. And if you don't know anything about Creative Live, you must check it out. It's where Pulitzer Prize winners, New York Times bestsellers, the best of the best teach photo video art design music and audio craft and maker and the ability to make a living and a life in all of those disciplines there is free content there 24 hours a day seven days a week and there's also more than 10,000 hours of content for you to access on demand you guys know i'm a huge believer in the power of daily habits and today creative live as a part of the sponsor announcement wants you to know that they have a new very powerful way to make education a part of your daily routine that would be the creative live iphone ipad and apple tv apps they're all free and they let you watch all of the creative life classes that are on air streaming for free anything you already own and on the iphone and ipad apps you can watch one daily lesson of your choosing for free that is one of 25,000 lessons for free, which is super super gnarly to get those apps. Go to the App Store, uh, iTunes, and search Creative Live, or go to creativelive.com/slash apps. There you go. Now, let's get into the show.
1: Thank you for yeah. being on the show. Of course. Second I think you were the, my first big interview that I ever did. So. Second time on the show. Yeah.
0: And the first one was right at Trust Me, I'm Lying, which was like four years ago now? No, Three years like ago? Five, five. Five? At least, yeah. Holy crap. Mm-hmm. I'll never go five years without you being on the show. That, does, right. we've been on, that means we've been doing this for a long time. Yeah. Um, it, you could say that it's a perennial show. Bom, bom, we're going to unpack the book, but before we do, we're in Austin, Texas. Um we're we were just talking about you own you, you were the last time you we were on the show yeah. you, you were living in the middle of Los Angeles were you not? Yeah, I think I, th- I was
1: either in Los Angeles or I had a, I lived in New York. So yeah, so one of those Very two urban. places yes.
0: super urban. I thought of you of like crazy renegade marketer who was hacking billboards for American apparel and helping people launch you know best-selling books of their own. And now we're in Austin, Texas. You just talking about, you, you drove past the farm store. Yeah. What Massive life change. And, and so have you moved to the country to write? Or what's the, what's the story behind your life I
1: transformation? Think, I think one of the reasons I left New York was that there was too much going on in New York. and It was very hard to do work that I liked. In the sense of, when you're in Manhattan, and even when I'm there, like on business, mm-hmm. there's an unlimited amount of things, not only that you can do sort of culturally or... Or sightseeing or whatever but there's so many people there doing really great work yeah. that it almost feels like you're being irresponsible not taking certain meetings taking certain jobs yeah. uh, going to certain events and so I, I found it was like incredibly hard not just to write but to do any sort of thinking or any of the work that had propelled me to be able to afford to move to New York City in the first place and so when I living one of the I, first I just moved to Austin just to like Austin proper and and part of it was like I won't feel bad not being at a the party in right. New York City if I live in Austin because I live in Austin and I shouldn't be there, right? <laughs> so it was like it was a way of just sort of radically saying no and simplifying yeah. things. And then, uh, as things are are want to do, it quickly snowballed from me living on the east side of Austin to living very east of Austin on a cattle ranch. But uh, it has been great.
0: I, I follow you on Instagram, of course. I follow you, everything you do, but and I'm watching you feed carrots to. Donkeys.
1: <laughs> yeah. Or this this morning, I, I woke up and one of our longhorns had ju- had jumped over the fence. So you spend all this time making this barbed wire fence. Of course, they can't go through the fence. You know, you think you've all got it, and then you just watch this, you know, fifteen hundred pound animal just <laughs> right over the fence. And then uh, yeah, I don't know. It keeps me busy in a in a way that's not that's very the opposite of what I do for yeah. a living. And and having that balance has been really really good for me. I I will jump in that bandwagon.
0: I have I, I love working with my hands and so much of the work I'm doing right now is very um it's it's, yeah, it's cerebral it's, it's, yeah it's very yeah. cerebral work and it's you know leadership and in inspiring others and learning from others and applying that to the creative live world or to making videos and whatever we're doing. And I still love we had a uh, mostly in San Francisco now we have a home in Seattle and we had a big remodel. And yeah. there was some like I got to get like into
1: it a little bit. Sure. Wow, oh, so good. I think it feels good. It's also it's also it takes you away from what you're doing. But I've also found it's very humbling too. So like um, all the things I do at my farm, they don't require they don't require you to be smart in the way that I always thought of myself as smart. Yeah. So it's like like I'm, we're having this garden built, and it's like I hired my 16 year old neighbor to like show <laughs> to do 98 percent of the work, and then I'm just sort of involved on the periphery. But it's like it. There's not a lot of things that 16 year olds are often showing me how to do. Yeah. And or there's not a lot of things that I'm having to watch YouTube videos to like yeah. figure out. And, and so it's, it's, I, it's like the farm stuff, you don't have to be smart. You just have to be patient and you have to be tough, right? And yeah. like that's just so the opposite of what I do on the computer yeah. or what I do when I'm writing. And, and that's, it's, I think it's made me better at the other things that I do.
0: I love the connection. I'm gonna go back. Uh, Five years ago, to trust me, i um, and maybe even how you got into that whole world because you were a, a marketer. Yeah, and so talk to me about a how you landed up in marketing, and then the transition to, you know, maybe how you identify today.
1: Yeah, so five years ago, I sort of sat down and wrote a book, which today we would say is sort of about fake news and about the manufacturing of fake news and how how the system can be and is sort of manipulated by marketers to sort of get messages out into this very noisy world. And whether marketers are companies or politicians yeah, or messages. How yeah. information spreads in this sort of internet age. And um, I thought I was basically sort of lighting my marketing career on fire by writing, like literally like yeah. Yeah. destroying it by writing yeah. this book. And it sort of went the opposite direction. You know, I started a company that's worked with all sorts of cool clients since then. But what it really opened up for me was the idea of writing as a profession, and so that was my first book, and then I've done now, I think I'm on my sixth book, so six books in five years. It's been, uh, let's say, exhausting, to put it mildly, but um, just the idea of being able to wake up and have an idea and write about it and communicate it to an audience, to me, is not only is that the end of marketing, that's like the goal of marketing, but that's sort of very creatively fulfilling, and so that's... I would, I would say I sort of identify as a writer first, and then I keep my hand in the marketing world as a way of keeping things interesting, and then also making sure that I'm not, I don't ever just wanna be on the sidelines sort of talking about how things might be going. I wanna yeah. actually be doing know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when you wrote your first book, uh, I'm gonna go back to the fake news comment. Okay. Of course when you, um, the political environment here in the United States is, Unlike anything I think that anybody saw coming, or if you saw it coming, you, and you talked about it, people were like downplay it. And yeah, yeah so you go ahead.
1: Yeah, I mean,' it, it's, this is what I was writing the book about, one of the messages I felt in the book was like, here's how I'm doing this when I work with author clients, or when I work with clothing companies, or when I work with funny people or trying to get something like trying to do some prank or some stunt. And, and to me, the ultimate message of the book was, if I can do this so easily with these things that don't matter, yeah. what do you think people with more resources and less ethics are gonna be able to do? And, and I would say that, I don't wanna say that message was dismissed, yeah. but it was, uh, there was a lot of shooting the messenger yeah. there, and, and I think that came at our peril. I mean, if you, and I don't think we wanna talk about politics on this show, but it is interesting to think that Donald Trump was, has been talking about running for president since longer than I've been alive. Like his first, I think it was 86, 87. So he's talking about it. And, so, and then every four years, he would talk about it again. And so what changes in 2015, 2016, well, it's that these forces that have been operating on our media system for so long, got to a stage where the, this sort of act became real. Yep. And that's very, very alarming. And so I think people need to understand these things not just like defensively um, because you don't want to be manipulated. How many people were sort of uh, they wake up every morning and they're upset and they don't know why they're upset and they don't see what's acting on them. And then also you have to know that these are the things that you're competing with. So um, whether you love Donald Trump or hate Donald Trump, what he is is an embodiment of how information spreads and operates in 2017. And you need to know Okay, at the very, one of the things I remember I was saying that people thought was funny on your last show is like, you, th- you, know, you have this charity that's supposed to help you know, kids in Africa or you have this message of inspiration or hope about you know, some, something you deeply believe in and then you're competing with lolcats and internet pornography and fake news and all these things and so we're all competing in the Facebook feed for everyone's attention yeah. and if you don't know how to break through that, you're gonna wonder why no one knows who you are. So true. And to me, that was I. I, uh,
0: I would say made largely made my photography career on the back of information spreading quickly. Yes. So one of the that's one of the reasons that I was initially besides just was it Tim that introduced us? Yeah, I think it? so. Tim Ferriss. Um, I, besides just being friends with another, you know, having mutual friends. Yeah. I was fascinated because I hadn't deconstructed like effectively deconstructed my own success and it was largely around information moving quickly and, and the information of how to take amazing photographs in a world wasn't just about some special technique that I had that if you know, the information was gonna spread and that information was gonna be available to everyone yeah. so you can, like you can lean into it and lead with it or pretend it doesn't exist and try and keep it quiet for as long as you can. And so I was the, the recipient of the benefit of sharing Right before it was trendy to do so, and when I saw the similarity, I mean, I was aware of why I was doing it and that it was effective. Um, But when I saw it as, wow, this is going to be much bigger than the thing, My Little World. Right, and and to today to have it affect politics the way it does and international news um, has been a
1: mind blower. So. Well, you think about advertising, right? It's like on the one hand, as the photographer, let's say their job is to take this photo that's supposed to sell the product in the magazine or on TV or, or on social media. But then actually what advertising has really become, given the infinite amount of news sources we have, is really it's supposed to generate discussion and attention and, and chatter. And so it really changes what a lot of people's roles are. It's like, no, my job isn't to capture how the the shoe looks. Yeah. My job is to capture the way the shoe looks in such a way that other people will start talking about it on Twitter and so this these forces sort of crank up how controversial and interesting and provocative or crazy or weird things have to be yeah. and if you if you just think your job is to take the best photo possible, mm-hmm. you're going to be continually disappointed why your work's not breaking through. yeah I just read that Adidas passed Jordan as the number
0: two sneaker brand. Really? It used to be Nike, then yeah. Jordan, and then Adidas was, their market share didn't equal, their whole global market share didn't equal to what Jordan was in the US. And there were people just a couple years ago saying they should totally throw in the towel. Right. And through tapping into um, cultural icons, for example, yeah. they have used that, you know, whether it's yeah. unintentional or intentional, sure. or just like we're gonna go celebrity route or whatever, and that has the fact that people are talking about Adidas, making Adidas yeah. different and yeah. interesting, is more valuable than all of the actual advertising in and of itself.
1: Yeah, of course, or you look at like cryptocurrencies, how much of it is that people are like, oh, I really believe in this, or how much of it is like everyone's talking about it. So I'm, like, these things, were just so exposed to them, and get so much attention yeah. that they, they, they become real. Uh, and, and that's both really empowering and really terrifying at the same time. Uh, I'm gonna shift gears from, um, from trust me,
0: I'm lying to stoic philosophy. Okay, So whether, a very natural transition. Yeah, of course, <laughs> but to me it's, it is natural because it explains so much of your recent success. Um, I'm, I'm unabashedly applying a lot of this to my life. Uh, and I grew up. I don't know if a lot of people know this, but I was in a PhD program in philosophy. And um, people ask me all the time, like, or I remember my parents saying, "Are you going to philosophize about being unemployed?" Yeah. Or, like, what you know, like, what what's, what is sure, philosophy? Sure, sure. And my, when I met my wife Kate, she was like, philosophy. She was like, that's like sociology. It's like just like whatever path is yeah. going to get you the shortest, the quickest degree. Right, right, right. And and yet it has been a tool for critical thinking. And when I think about Stoic philosophy, I remember learning about it a little bit back then, but. You've brought this um, with just with with maybe even the first book, Obstacles Away. You thrust it into the limelight of popular culture. Now it's everywhere. All the football coaches are talking about it. Strategists, politics, pop culture—it's everywhere. What? Give us a little backstory.
1: Well, it's kind of sad, right? That this thing that we've done as a society or culture for like thousands of years is dismissed as this like thing for academics, Mm -hmm. and like it's it's. Obviously, a tool for critical thinking, and, and that you even got that out of it is like unique or unusual, right? right? But the truth was, for most of its history, ancient philosophy was not this academic discipline. It wasn't. It wasn't about thought exercises. It was supposed to be sort of practical lessons for what they would call the art of living. Mm-hmm. And so um, the Stoics, the Stoics almost didn't believe in what people were writing. They were like, "How do you live your life? What do you do?" Um, and so I, I, what I I. That's the f- kind of philosophy that I'm really interested in. Um, there's a line. Is it practical? Is it practicality? Yeah. Is that what it is about it? Or? Yeah. I mean, like, so Epicurus, who's, who wasn't a Stoic, but he would say, "Vain is the word of the philosopher, which does not heal the suffering of man." Like the point is, it's supposed to help you in your life. Do what you're doing. Or Marcus Aurelius, who's, who is one of the Stoics, he would say that no role is so well suited to philosophy as the one you're in right now. So the the idea is. You're a photographer, you're, the, you're an emperor, you're a writer, you're a janitor. How can you apply these principles in your actual life? Right. It's not, um, can you have this interesting debate about do we exist or not? Is this yeah. a computer simulation? Yeah. They, they would say, like, what should you do when you feel your temper coming up? What should you do when You know, uh, you're in a position of power or leadership. What do you do uh, when you start to think about the fact that you might only have 20 or 30 years left in your life? Or what do you do when a friend of yours passes? These are, those are the kinds of situations that they would say that philosophy is designed for. And so I'm, I was really interested in it. Specifically, there's one exercise from Marcus Aurelius that the book is based on where he basically is saying, the impediment to action advances action. What stands in the way, it becomes the way. And really what he meant is that we don't control what happens, we control how we respond. And that's the sort of element of stoicism that I've tried to introduce as a writer. And yeah, it's shocking. The, the New England Patriots read it on their way to the Super Bowl in 2014, and then they, they beat the Seahawks. You shut up. They beat the Seahawks. And
0: then <laughs> and then Seahawks. That was the worst game ever. Sorry. And then they gave...
1: Well, so, so that's what's so interesting. It's like you lose a game... On the one-yard line that you thought you were going to win, that the decision you made in probably 99 times out of 100 should have given you that win. Yes. I sat in Pete Carroll's office in his chair, and he was like, "Look, I, what do you?" Like, he was he was talking about uh, what do you do in that situation? How, like, how do you? And these are precisely the situations that stoke philosophy. Yeah, the philosophy is designed for cuz you can't go back in time. You can't undo what you did. You only control what you learn from that situation, how you carry yourself forward. You know, what I, I loved, and he hadn't read the book yet, so this is all him, but you know, Pete Carroll's response, afterwards they're, you know, they're blaming the quarterback, they're blaming the, the receiver, and he's like, I made the call, it was my decision, and I own it. that. That is a philosophical decision, to decide to take responsibility for something yeah. that you very easily could have pushed off on someone else. Yeah. And uh, so that's the kind of philosophy that I'm really interested in. So what I,
0: would like to do is take the because even still conceptually, yeah. stoic philosophy. Right. It's there is a barrier from people saying, like, I really want to embrace Stoic philosophy as a mechanism to, again, the, the audience who are, who are listening here, largely creative, entrepreneurial, you know, that's what I've leaned into in my profession and that's what creative life stands for. And and so for the folks at home that are going like, whoa, Stoic philosophy like let's now go specific and even the Seahawks yeah. and the Super Bowl. Those are some abstract things.
1: Right. So. Well so first off they're probably not saying that. They're like, that sounds super boring. <laughs> I don't want to do any of that. <laughs> so so but I I get what you're I get what you're saying. So the the way that I sort of Stoicism is basically three disciplines that I talk about. So the first is perception. So how do you look at this situation, right? Any, any situation. Um, someone is rude to you, uh, your company's in trouble. You need to get your work out there be yeah. discovered and seen. So, so do you look at it as this, uh, this negative situation? Do you look at it as being totally unfair? Do you look at it as impossible? The way you're gonna look at it is largely gonna determine how you're going to be able to respond not the secret, right, not yeah. like wish that it's good and it becomes good, but like how are you going to see it and what are you going to focus on? And so the Stoics would say, first off, you want to look at it as objectively as possible. They would say like, there's no good or bad, there's just how we look at things, like which is true, right, because yeah. a negative situation to you might, there is somebody in another country who would literally kill to for have, the opportunity to have that yes. amazing thing happen to them. Yes. And so so what you take from that is, is that, oh, wait, how I see this, the perspective that I look at this thing mm-hmm. is going to change whether it's, it's going to change what I'm going to be able to do with it. And, and that we have a huge amount of power. It's like, on the one hand, it's sort of disempowering to think that we don't control 98% of what happens to us in life. Right? Yeah. A car crashes through your living room, your plane is delayed, uh, You know, an investor backs out, all these things. You don't control those decisions because other people make them, you know physics and sure, but we all that final two percent is like what we tell ourselves that those things are or mean. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Like I had a I had a a thing that went south a couple days ago, and I got this um, nasty email, and we were gonna there might be some dispute over money about it, and I was really upset about it, and then I was thinking like. Well first off, what did I do wrong in this situation? And I did a number of things wrong that led up to it happening. And so it's like, okay, um, let me take responsibility for those. And then second, is this not a wake up call about those things? So obviously I'm gonna to try to fix this situation, will get it right, maybe I am in the right, but at the very least, this is gonna wake me out of a, wake me up out of a sort of a stupor or a status quo where I allowed these things to happen. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So like that, the perception that we bring to things is like the most that. That's probably the most important discipline of stoicism. And, and is there is there a sense of it's almost like
0: awareness practice where you're asking yourself a question like what is what does this mean?
1: Yeah. Well, if you think so, Marcus Aurelius' famous book is called Meditations, mm-hmm. right? So he's meditating on these ideas, not in a sort of a Zen yeah. pose, but he's writing. He's. We have this book that survives from this this great man where he was just sort of like, uh, you know, there's this one line I I love where he goes like, are you afraid of death because you won't be able to do this anymore? And he's like just implying like whatever crap that he did that day, (laughs) that was a total waste of time. Yeah. That, you know, one of those days where you're just like doing nothing, and then he's like, wait, this is what I'm protecting? And so he's like, he's just working on these things mentally and he's also writing them down. I think journaling's sort of part of it, but yeah, it's it's, Let's make sure we're thinking about these things right. Um, so you talked about a framework. Yeah. And the first part of that framework is really
0: thinking like, wait, you know, what does this mean? What what attitude yes. am I going to bring to this challenge? And this is where I love the practicality of this system, and you know, I've seen it in in the obstacles away and and in just your work
1: everywhere, but. Talk to me about steps two and three. So one is how you yeah. like, how you look with your attitudes. then what do you do with this information? Right again, not the secret, not like yeah. hey I this horrible thing happened and I said it's positive, so it becomes positive. Yeah. Right? No, it's like what do you do with this information? I think one of the most compelling examples of this if we can go historically is you think about um, you think about Eisenhower in the Second World War, and over and over again this 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 sort of German Blitzkrieg has has just had this devastating effect on the Allied forces and. And, and after D-Day, it's this massive counteroffensive, like 200,000 German men in tanks. And, and there's this scene where Eisenhower, he calls all his generals into this conference room and he walks in and he says, look, I want you to see this as an opportunity and not as a disaster. Um, and he says, there will only be cheerful faces at this conference table. So that's sort of the, that's the perspective side of things. He's, what he's done is he's looked at it differently and he realizes that this sort of massive counteroffensive, this offensive mindset that the enemy is doing is also desperately overreaching, right? So they're rushing at you. If you break and you are intimidated by this, then it works. But if you absorb it and you encircle it, then there's an opportunity there. So this is what they do. If you think about uh, this first happens at the Folly's Pocket and then at, at, at the Battle of the Bulge. So people have heard of the Battle of the Bulge. What you don't realize is that the Battle of the Bulge was the Nazis thinking that they're winning, right? They create this giant bulge in the Allied lines, but then slowly the bulge begins to close around them. So the discipline of perception is, how am I gonna see this? What can I? What good is in this terrible situation? And then how can I take action and decisions based on this information? How can I exploit this opportunity? Which he does, and it becomes this, uh, basically they, they take something like 50,000 German prisoners in the Battle of the Bulge alone. Um, And so it's this idea of of catching yourself, seeing it differently than everyone else, and then doing or zooming in on that thing that other people aren't willing to do or aren't able to see. So so the the second discipline of stoicism then is action. You have to make this into something. Just because you see it is is not enough. Yeah, take some notes.
0: No, it needs to be active.
1: Yeah, uh, um, we both know Casey Neistat, and, yep. and Casey's saying, uh, I remember this interview he did a couple months ago or years ago, and someone was like, look, I, I want to run this idea for a business by you. And he was like, I don't care about your idea. Yeah. He's said, like, tell me when you've started it, and then show me what you've made, and then maybe there's something to do together. Yeah. And, and I think that's true on books, or movies, or companies, or just, I want to, uh, people are like, I'm thinking about running a marathon. Well, who cares, right, like, <laughs> I'm thinking about doing a lot of things that I never do, right, so right. what are you gonna do, um, and what what is your actual plan for doing so? I think that's the critical variable. Did you put, list that as number two? That's two. The third discipline would be the discipline of the will, how do you deal with those sort of overwhelming moments when life just sort of kicks your ass, yeah. you know? Um, I tell the story of Thomas Edison in the book. Um, you know. He, he, He's, and he's an old man, he's the most successful inventor in America, and his factory burns down, and he rushes to this scene, it's still on, in flames, and his son is standing there, sort of shell-shocked, and Edison famously goes, you know, go get your mother, uh, she's never going to see a fire like this again. Um, and 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 he's just sort of embraced this uh, thing that he can't do anything about, yeah. um, And and he tells a reporter that... Uh, this th- He's like, it, this prevents a, an old man from getting bored essentially is what he says. And so the Stoics have this image, they call it, uh, uh, th- their metaphor is fire. They, they, their translation was a fati, which means the love of fate. Mm-hmm. But basically the idea was like anything you throw in front of a fire only fuels the fire. And so the Stoics had this idea for the problems and difficulties that we face in life that they're even the ones that we can't do anything about mm-hmm. can still transform us or change us in some way and we always have that power. And so they're, they're almost, on the one hand, they're almost like preparing for bad things to happen. They're yeah. almost visualizing them in advance. Yeah. And then in some ways they're almost like looking forward to them because they know it's gonna change them or improve them or they'll yeah. make the most of it in some way. The way I, I have, I, I love this so much and the way I have
0: translated this into uh, a message for the folks who pay attention to what it is that we're talking about here or the show, is that when shit gets hard, and it will, yep. 100% guaranteed, if you commit yourself to anything that matters or is meaningful to you or any cross-section of the world, shit's gonna get hard, yep. and when it does, you can either look at it as something that's there to keep you out, or something that is there to keep everybody else out who doesn't want it as bad as you do.
1: No, I love that. I say that, I say that all the time, I go like with books, if it were easy, there'd be more amateurs doing it yeah. and there wouldn't be any money in it, yeah. right? Like like the what creates the financial upside or the the the, the recognition of the things that people are after is scarcity yeah. and so if it was easy, if everyone can do it, if it was naturally gonna go your way, if there weren't yeah. those walls keeping you out, yeah. it wouldn't be worth anything, yeah. it's like, uh, no one's no one's proud of you for knowing how to drive because everyone knows how to drive, right? Like you, a 16-year-old can learn how to do it, right? Like it's not right. an accomplishment. But you mm-hmm. know, um, launching a company or building a brand or you know, working for this or that—these are things that not everyone can do, and that's why they're appealing. impressive, yeah.
0: appealing, or impressive yeah. or yeah,
1: or lucrative. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um,
0: so let's. I'm going to talk about ego for a second. Okay. Um, and you have another book, one yeah. of the six now. I can't believe you've done six books, man, that's nuts. Um, title of the book is Ego is the Enemy. Yeah. And I think in, a, in let's just talk about popular culture for a second, because it goes hand in hand with uh, ego. Um, there's so much in popular culture, and I think so, much creators, so many creators and entrepreneurs as you try and stand out from everyone else. You know, I advocate being different, not just better. Um, but it's there's so much ego baked into the highlight reel of one's self or the highlight reel of others, yeah. comparing to you know your all your dirty laundry. Right. What role does ego play in both the success and if you don't
1: believe it, it yeah. contributes to the success to the, the the problems for so many. Well, I make a big distinction between ego and confidence. Like yeah. I say, like. I don't believe in myself, I have evidence, right? And that's, that's where, and, and I'm only gonna have confidence up until the point that the evidence supports it, and then everything else is sort of beyond where I wanna go. Okay. But the nice part about that is it's in my control. I can go get more evidence, I can go prove more things about myself. I think one of the things that's so hard about our culture, cl- clearly ego has always been a problem, yeah. right? Going back to the Greeks, you know, hubris is the theme of all great yeah. Greek tragedies, tragedies yeah, right? Of course. Um, but, you know, Odysseus didn't have to have an Instagram account or didn't, no, didn't care how many Twitter followers he had, right? Sure. So I really pity very, like, people, you and I were both lucky enough to grow up. I was just on the other side of it, to grow up and become a fully formed human being without social media. Yeah warping who you were as you were becoming it. Yeah, um, yeah, I think about that a lot. Cheryl Strade says, uh, you're be- in your 20s, you're becoming who you're gonna become, so you might as well not be an asshole. And uh, social media makes people into assholes, I think, you know because it's like when I look at my Instagram feed, I know that that's not my life. First off, I know that I'm not that good of a photographer, that it's the whole, the the smartest uh, programmers and designers in the world are working to make, to trick me into thinking that I'm better at this than I am. And then I only take photos of things that I think other people will like, right? And so I know what happened in between those photos. But then when I look at other people's, I'm not like, oh, this is a snapshot of their life. I see them running up the steps of a private jet or getting out of their Lamborghini or on yeah. the beach in Bali or something. And you go like, well, why am I not doing that? Yeah. Are they better than me? Uh, am I doing something wrong? Should I feel bad about myself? Yep. And, and so so these things are sort of warping. So on the one hand, I would never dispute that this is not part of the age that we live in, that this isn't part of having a brand, that there isn't marketing. But it used to be that only public people had to do that delicate balance between their image and who they actually were as a human being. Yeah, And increasingly that's a problem we all have, which is yeah. like how do, you, how do you play the game without believing in it, yeah. and how do you do the marketing without marketing to yourself? Wow. That is a, how do you market without marketing to yourself? And that, is
0: there like a, Fake it till you make it thing in there.
1: Yeah, it's like it's like how do you how do you play the hype game without buying into your own hype? And and I think one of the things that I've found about like really great companies and entrepreneurs and stuff is like, for instance, if I was like, pitch me creative live, you would give me the best pitch in the world, because you know it. But then if I was like uh, privately, I was like, Chase, tell me all the problems with Creative Live, yeah. that would actually be a much longer list. Because yeah. so the, like the CEO, the leader has to know, okay, here's what we're working on here's where we're going here's what we sell to people yeah and then on the other hand you have to be this ruthless perfectionist who's zooming in on the thing on always trying to get yeah. better yeah. yeah and so I think as a person you have to know you have to know what you're working on where your weakness like if confidence is an understanding of your strengths then you balance that out with humility by a very real understanding of your weaknesses and to if ego is just how strong all the things you wish were true about yourself, right? So right. it's it's the most dangerous because, yeah. you know, it's like, look, just because you believe you can do something doesn't mean you can do it. Yeah. On the other hand, if you don't believe you can do it, you're probably not gonna do it. But the idea of like faking it till you make it, to me, is very dangerous. Oh, it's toxic. Yeah. And, yeah, I've
0: transformed that saying, I, I write fake it till you make, and then I cross out the fake, and right. I put make. Right, just like, make it. Make it until you make it. Right. And to me, that's a little bit more healthy, but it's it's, directly tied into that ego thing about um, like feeding yourself your own bullshit. Yeah. And you, like you think that that's positive thinking or mental visualization, but it's really not. I think it's toxic and undermines your ability to succeed.
1: Well, I, we both love Austin Cleon's work. Incredible. And so I, I, I wrote about this in Perennial a bit, but I love his concept of like, you can't be the noun without doing the verb. And in, in some ways, the healthiest thing is to almost forget the noun and fall in love with the verb. And then that way it's like you're not even concerned with how these things are coming off because yeah. I'm not thinking, Like I got very lucky when The Obstacles Away really started to blow up mm. because I had already sold ego and I was getting my ass kicked every day by it. Yeah. So there wasn't like parties and celebrations and I, I, it was in, in a weird good way, I almost wasn't able to enjoy it because I was too busy on the, on the craft of the yeah. next thing, and, yeah. and so I think it, it. Social media makes it really easy to celebrate things before you've done them, mm. and then to reflect to sort of become absorbed by them when you do have them, rather than you know doing the verb
0: like the verb. I just um, was with someone who's wildly successful. You know, most people would know this person's name off tip their tongue easily, easy to roll off the tongue, and they have an amazing opportunity at their hands and they're asking some advice from a friend. Like, yeah. hey man, like, what, what should I do here? Yeah. And my, the immediate place that I went to, and I, I'm not a great therapist, I end up being a pretty good career counselor because yeah, I've talked sure. you know, face to face with thousands of people off stage and, and said, but what do you love to do? Right. So what part of this potential area of massive opportunity like, what are you going to actually do? What are you gonna wake up and put your shoes on, your yep. boots on, and go do? And if you don't love the doing part, right. the rest yeah. of this is a is a shit sandwich, and it's not yeah. gonna work out. And how do you think about the, like, apply that, use a little bit of ego and the enemy to talk to the people at home about the thing that they want, they, whether they want to be a
1: photographer or an entrepreneur or whatnot, try and make a story out of that for me. Well, one of the things I look at in my own career when I'm deciding to work with clients or I'm deciding to work on, you know, a different project or whatever, is I try to go, okay, let's say I have these two opportunities, one's going to pay me a lot mm-hmm. and one's going to pay me not as much. Um, obviously, depending on, you know, do I need this to survive? Sure. It, these variables are very real and I, I don't want to dismiss them, but... Which one am I going to learn more by doing? And I think if you if you t- if you always take the learning one, or you take the learning one more often than not, yeah, it's going to keep you humble. It's going to make you, by definition, better in some way, mm-hmm. um, and it's going to you're going to enjoy it more. We always appreciate what we've learned and and that process of learning. Yeah, oftentimes we tend to resent. E- there's a reason that people who make lots of money are often still very dissatisfied. Um, people who are being challenged and learning and growing, I, f- I find that that's, it's less often that you're, I'm learning a ton, but I'm just so miserable. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that's those the, don't go together don't very often. Don't go together, yeah.
0: Um, all right, I want to fast forward to this okay. perennial seller because we've been, I feel like there's a nice lily pad from the media stuff up to Perennial Seller, and when I, I thank you very much for including me on your galley list, I, oh, got yeah. the, I got the early copy, and to me it was it was sort of an aha thing that was right there in front of you at, at the whole time, right there in front of all of us yeah. in popular culture We're trying to be successful, not for the sake of success, but to make something that matters. Yeah. And it was like a face palm, like duh. So walk us through the concept behind perennial solo, the art of making and marketing work that lasts and you know, what was the aha for you that said this is a book that needs to be made?
1: The the big the weird aha moment was this tiny thing in publishing. Um, if you look at the New York Times bestseller list, which everyone sort of uses as the rubric for success in the publishing industry, it says very clearly in the in the fine print, like not tracked in the New York Times bestseller list are perennial sellers. What's a perennial seller? Well, it turns out the vast majority of income in the publishing industry comes from books that were published a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, 100 years ago. Seven Habits of Highly Effective, how many? Right, Good to Great, The Great Gatsby, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, What to Expect When You're Expecting, sells like a million copies a year. Um, And yet, 90% of the focus of the industry is about chasing something new. And it's been cool to see my books sell, like The Obstacle's Away sold more copies last year than it did the year before, than the year before, than the year before. Wow. Um, paradoxically, less marketing from me because the book does something for people. It's yeah. like solving a problem, it's real. And so it's just so interesting to me that it, we, we, no one would dispute that it's hard to start a company, write a book, make a movie. Yet most of this stuff just disappears. Like, even the successful ones sort of disappear very quickly. Yeah. And so I'm fascinated by stuff that, that lasts, right, that really survives. Um, my favorite restaurant in Los Angeles is not some fancy Michelin star restaurant. It's the original Pantry Cafe, which is across the street from Staples Center, that opened in 1924. And it's open 365, uh, 24-7. So there's no locks on the doors of the restaurant. Like because they've never closed. And I just love that idea of like, first off, they only accept cash. So it's probably just made millions and millions of dollars. And they probably report very little of it to the government. You know what I mean? Like that I would much rather own that business than like Nobu or Mr. Chow's or you know, like that is that's so cool. And and that if we're really honest with ourselves, that's what we're trying to do. Um, but we just end up getting distracted by the fact that you know fidget spinners are popular or that everyone's on it. You know? And so yeah. I, I can only imagine in, in your space where it's like you start this company because you believe in it, but then you see all these other people who have much worse companies that do much. It's like, oh, then they sold to Microsoft for X amount, and they sold to, to Yahoo, and they sold. Yeah. And, and it's like, we even though we set out to make something that lasts, we can get distracted by... All the stuff that's going on around us, and so I tried to write sort of like a a glorification of things that last, like the really great things. Uh, be, because why not? Yeah. You know what I mean? And but those are the things that take up,
0: I believe, the uh, the space in between what's the new, just stuff that people are churning on. Yeah. And when. Shit gets hard, or when pop culture goes south, or when there's a terrible catastrophe, or what do you fall back on? Right. And there's something that's sort of more real, or I don't know what it is. And I'll give you a, an analogy around Creative Live. Um, we have uh, now like almost 2,000 classes, 10,000 hours of content we've been right. making from the ground up for seven years and when people well first of all when we you know started making this and investors said why well, you should just like open it up and be a two-sided marketplace yeah. so you get yeah. you know 100,000 classes but i'm like oh my god there's so much junk in sure. there so we're going to do it the slow way yeah. and very very intentional but what we did is we developed this amazing muscle to make the world's best learning content right. with the world's top experts like yeah. yourself and Richard Branson and Tim Ferriss and Ari Huffington and the list of names is long yeah. and impressive what we got so good at making stuff that what we were not good at is marketing things that were the best stuff in our catalog. Yeah. What we ended up doing is just focusing on like what's tomorrow. Because right. you get addicted when shit gets hard. Right. You're like, what do we, what what makes us feel good? We've celebrated as a culture in our company the releasing of a new title. Yeah. And so then you're just like, when right. stuff gets hard, you don't actually see. We stop. need more, we need more. Yeah. We yeah. And, and I realized that this is a fortunately we realized a creative live and we still make a ton, but we're looking at the things that, like, what, like, for your example, your class. Right. We can continue to go back and, like, how to stand out and get great artists for PR yeah. or great PR for for artists and creators, because
1: that is that ever going away? Do- <laughs> no, no. And it is crazy because, like, I mean, I still I get the the checks, the checks and I'm like, whoa, how is this? Ha-? I've actually noticed that start to happen on Creative Live. Like, so, about a year ago, it seemed like there started to be a spike again, which yeah. is very cool. And, and the truth is almost all the creative industries yeah. are, are that way, right? Movie studios are putting out the new Transformers movie, but it's really a Christmas story <laughs> and Shawshank Redemption <laughs> and Star Wars, You know, all yeah. these movies that are, that are just churning out, that people are discovering or watching on television for the 50th time. Yeah. You know, Seinfeld has made $3 billion, not Jerry Seinfeld, the show yeah. Seinfeld has made $3 billion since the show went off the air. Right? That's the value of uh making <laughs> something that's correct, Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um that and and the, because we still work in offices, people still move to New York, they're still they like yeah. the themes of the of the show are still so true. And yeah, just think about it. It's like all the people that are chasing the new popular business book, right? Yeah. Like uh, oh, or you know, how to, how to become rich uh, you know, in the Trump era, or you know, some sure. silly things like that. And then it's like what to expect when you're expecting, or a book that college grads you give to your son when he graduates from college, or um, that you give to your daughter when she gets married. You know, like what are the books that yep. solve a part of your life?
0: Um, the example you give in perennial sellers, like turning fifty. Yes. Right? Yeah. Every, pretty much everybody, unless you have an unfateful death before then, you're going to turn fifty. Yeah. And that is a thing that everybody goes through, so how can you solve a problem? And that's, maybe we can shift yeah. and get into some tactics. Right now,
1: yeah, think? I mean, that's, right, Right. what, so, I, you wanna go, like, this is a blank that does blank for blank, right? Like, so, can you fi- can you actually fill in that question? Like, I love, uh, I talk about uh, Red Wing boots. Mm-hmm. Red Wing boots starts making boots in the early 1900s to equip the U.S. Army in the First World War, and they're still making the same boots. Like, their boot is called, like, the 1915 boot, or something like that. and um, I have a pair that cost $300 when they came out, so that's very expensive, but I've had them resold twice. They get more comfortable every day that I wear them. Yeah. People notice that. It's like it, it's more expensive, but they're not having to roll out a new edition every year. Yeah. And that, It was actually weird the same way at American Apparel. One of the mistakes the company made was chasing fashion, the fashion Bad seasons, fashion. Yeah. whereas the reality is if you make something great uh, and you make the same thing over... You get better at it, it gets cheaper to make, the margins get better, and you have to do less marketing because there's word of mouth. And so when I think about my own books, I go, are people gonna read this in 10 years? Is it still gonna be true in 10 years? And if not, then it's probably not a great use of my time. Or let's just make sure that if we are writing about something somewhat timely, that we're focused on the timeless elements of it. I wrote a book about growth hacking, and that's how startups market each other, but it's almost five years old and it's still selling um, because I focus not on the very, very specific cutting edge tactics, but on the mindset that goes into it because one is gonna last a little bit longer than the other.
0: And the examples, to go one step deeper there would be like A-B testing versus like how to buy this type of ad on Facebook.
1: Exactly, example. right, right. Here's, uh, here's a, a great app to get you more Twitter followers. Well, what if they go out of business tomorrow? Yeah. I was thinking about. Uh, I wrote about uh, Snapchat in the book a little bit um, as as an example of this because when I started the book, they were called Snapchat. Now they're called Snap, right? Yeah. And then Instagram launches Instagram Stories, and all of a sudden, Snapchat's usage is cratering. Yeah. So it's like, are you ma- your thing isn't going to last if it's based on things that are unlikely to last? My editor she gave me this note early on in the book, and I, I was. I was like, I made a joke about Groupon or coupon code or um, QR codes or something and uh, uh, gourmet cupcakes. And she was like, Imagine that someone is reading this book in 2040 in Thai. Would any of this make sense? And, and I'm like, No, it wouldn't. So I have to go deep. I have to pick some deeper analogy or deeper example that's going to be more timeless. So, in the obstacles way, I'm not saying, Yesterday, my friend Steve and I were talking about, I'm gonna tell you a story about Thomas Edison or yeah. uh, Demosthenes or, you know, or Odysseus, because look, the Odyssey has been part of our culture for 2,000 years, probably not going anywhere. Yeah. So you wanna make sure that you're basing your work on really great stuff. Let's deconstruct
0: for a second the way that folk, or let's talk for a second how people can deconstruct their own yeah. work. I think one of the, when I talk to folks who are early on in their career, they're just starting out, they're trying to go from zero to one, consider themselves a maker, or they're yeah. launching a business or whatever, I feel like there is a, um, there's a lack of research and a lack of sort of thoroughness and a lack of understanding what you're gonna say, what your critics are gonna say, what there, there's, that, the, the stuff that is wildly successful by and large has a, a ton of um, research behind it, and it's yeah. very thoughtful. Yeah. And I think what people think is that they, you know, they sit down and they just blast something out in a. In the a, lightning strike, the right. creative genius lightning strike. Right. So, talk to me about, you know, what your philosophy is and how, you know, what amount of work goes into it. And and having studied it, what are the habits?
1: Yeah. And maybe this is the punchline. What are the habits of the people who make great work? No, that's a that's a very great question. I would say one of the symptoms of this problem is a question I get all the time, where people go like what influencer should I have someone promote my book or my movie or my startup? And it's like, if you don't know those people's names, let alone you don't have, like, you should have personal relationships with all of them. But if you don't know who they are and you're asking a total stranger about this, you should hit the stop button as quickly as possible because there's probably some fundamental flaw in your product that doesn't address, you know what I mean? you don't know your space well enough. And so... Yeah, I, I want you to resist that egotistical impulse of like this thing that you've thought about for eight seconds is gonna be wildly better than the, than the people who have been in it for 10 years, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and it's not to say that it's gonna take you 10 years to get caught up. Or that someone else won't have a good idea. Yeah, but put in the time to actually ch- do the, check your work, you know, yeah. check the math, make yeah. sure it's actually true here. So one of, the, one of the best ways, so it's like with a book, I know what I'm trying to accomplish. I know who I'm trying to reach. One of the reasons you have an editor, and in publishing you submit to an editor, and then that's a legal yeah. term. You submit the manuscript, and then they accept it, and you only get paid if they accept it. Like it's contractually, the submission and acceptance. Um, uh, it's, so the SNA payment, yeah. right? Um, what that forces you to do is go to an objective third party and then they're gonna give you all sorts of notes on your book. And a lot of their notes are gonna be totally wrong, but like where their notes pertain to what you were trying to accomplish, they're gonna be able to tell you if you did it or not. Harper Lee turns into Kill a Mockingbird, and her editor says, this isn't a fully fledged novel, is what she said. Obviously, Harper Lee thought it was, or she wouldn't have turned it in. But um, Harper Lee does something like two years of work on it, it comes out. Usually what that book looks like would be lost to us, but when Ghost Set a Watchman comes out, it's the original draft of To Kill a Mockingbird. It was really popular at first, but like, do you see anyone reading it on a plane? It's not very good, right? It's, <laughs> it's not good compared to the work that her editor forced her to do to create To Kill a Mockingbird, which becomes this uh, you know, life-changing epic novel, where Even uh, Adele, Adele's last album is called 25, and each one of her albums is supposed to come out, is titled after the year she wrote it, uh, or the year it was released, how old she was. But it came out when she was 27, because Rick Rubin made her do two more years of work. (laughs) Uh, And so that's how it, you know, I think it's not, don't just think like you're, it's almost impossible for you to see your own work objectively. So you, you need to make sure you have a really strong network of creative collaborators that you trust who can be like chase there's flashes of genius in here yep. but they're not connected together and you need to fix this or like i tried it and i just i don't get it you yeah. know and and then you go well that's okay because it wasn't made for precisely for people like you or perhaps that person is your ideal target customer and if yeah. they're telling you like i don't like it you got to listen to them yeah so, what role? I talk about a thing called the other
0: fifty percent. Okay. And in um, in creating, I think most people believe that it's just the product that a yeah. great product just just you, know, you make a great product and then it's wildly successful. And the approach that I've taken is no, the get the great product is the get in the door fee. Yeah. Like then then you're actually on the field. That's the buy-in. Yeah, that's yeah. the buy-in or. Yeah, like, like I, I don't know why, but I use professional golf yeah. randomly. Like, the 300 golfers who are on the PGA, the men's PGA, or the women's PGA, the LPGA, yeah. like, the difference in skills is right. pretty, it's nominal. It's yeah. like the the, the the amount of distance that they can hit off the tee, the amount of putts they sink out of, right. ten, out of 10, and yet, how many golfers' names do you know? right. There's right. so few, and so it's basically, it's... What you think is 90% craft and 10% all the other stuff is sort of probably the other way around. You have to be great at your craft, and I don't ever want to diminish it, but it's this whole package. And now then, so you zoom out a little bit, you see it's not just the thing, then you zoom out and you say, oh my God, it's the total package. And then what I do is I draw a line right there and I say, great, that's 50% of the thing. And the other 50% is cultivating relationships and community around the things that you're trying to make. Like you said, if you want to launch a product and you don't know who the influencers are, that's, you've stopped at the other 50%. Yeah. And if you don't know that you're 50%, you have almost, you have 50% less chance of success. Right. Respond we, to that for me. When
1: you think about it with golf, it's like you have to qualify for the PGA Tour. So You have to yeah. win something that proves that you deserve to be there, and then you have to <laughs> keep winning, right? <laughs> yeah. But the way I think about it is, like I say with creative projects is like, making them is this marathon, and it's the hardest thing you've ever done. And then you you, you you just barely you stumble, stumble across the finish line. <laughs> yeah. And then you know the the race proctor, they grab you and they, they by the hand you think they're taking you to the rest tent or to the to the metal stand they're gonna put the metal actually they're grabbing you and they're just directing you to the beginning of a second marathon that you're <laughs> not at all prepared for, right? right? But that marathon is marketing, it's positioning, it's packaging, it's relationships, it's uh, you know. Investor—it's all yeah. the things that go into taking this idea and making it, and then getting it from your physical space to my physical space. Yeah. And um, there's a lot of overlap between these two phases, so it's not a sure. perfect analogy. But um, the idea that if you build it, they will come is killed so many great projects. And you have to remember, given the economics of of how content and stuff works today is like, you're not just competing with the other people who started at the same time as you. Like, if I make a YouTube series, I'm not competing with just the other YouTube series. I'm competing with the fact that on Netflix, I have access to some of the greatest shows that were ever made. Like, think about all, you're in television, it's like, think about all the people who have never watched an episode of The Wire yet, or Breaking Bad, or Mad Men. Like, (laughs) you're competing with (laughs) those, you're competing for those customers with those proven products yeah. that are yeah. objectively amazing and so marketing is is the tool that you use to win that fight and so are relationships and uh, your platform and your relationship with your fans and yeah. all of these things um, and yeah so the idea of just like the world isn't no one's like we really need more amazing stuff. Yeah. They're like, why should I choose your amazing stuff over this other amazing stuff? And by the way, this amazing stuff, it's free. And it's been around for 50
0: years, and it's time-tested, right. and it's on billboards, and on the, all the award shows, and all yeah. the blah, blah, blah.
1: Yeah, yeah, so it's
0: it's really, really, really hard. I was scrolling through my phone the other day looking for a photograph, and I came across a photograph of you, me, Scott Belsky, and Tim Ferriss mm-hmm. at-, uh, at oh, oh, at his party. Yeah, Yeah. At a, at a party that Tim threw. And, uh, made me think of Scott who was on the show a couple of weeks ago something like that and he's like there's so many great ideas in creative's heads that aren't going to be successful because they don't have their shit together. Yeah. I was wondering if you could react to that. Like what is what does it mean for the folks at home who are like I want I want
1: to have my shit together. So what is what is having one's shit together? Is it well, the stuff I I think about it like because I think about books a lot cuz I work with lots of authors and I have to think about it with myself, but don't judge a book by a cover. That's why books have covers, you know what I mean? Like, that's the whole point of the cover, is because that's what people do, right? And so, like, uh, I'll see products and, here's a good example, Wealthfront. Huge startup, billions of dollars uh, under management. I use it, I think it's wonderful. Its first name was Kachingle. Would you put your retirement money in a company called Kachingle? (laughs) I wouldn't. No, because I could never find it in the app store. How do you spell it? R- it's ka-chingle? R- ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> it's ridiculous. Right, it's totally ridiculous. A, a company isn't gonna urge their employees to put their retire- their 401k in Kachingle but yeah. they will put it in Wealthfront. Or um, did you see the, um, the, the Tom Cruise movie, The Edge of Tomorrow? No. Okay, it's a great fucking movie. Okay. But The Edge of Tomorrow is not what the movie's about and it's a terrible title. And so when they came out on DVD, they couldn't change the title, but they, they just rejiggered the poster so that it had the tag, the tagline was live, die, repeat, which is the, it, the movie is he's stuck in this continuum and so like every day he dies at the end of the day until he can get to this thing. So he's waking up and I did can you get a little- right, I saw the film, okay. Right, terrible title, yeah. right? But live, <laughs> die, repeat is an amazing yes. title for that movie. So these things, title, cover, logo, uh, copy um, the people who are involved with the product. These things have a, an incredible. We wish that they didn't, but they have an incredible impact on whether people are going to try them or not. In the same way that you would judge someone coming into an interview wearing shorts and sandals and you know their hair all disheveled, we judge work that way. And yeah. so you're, especially now that lots of people are self-publishing. Yeah. You already have a knock against you, so yeah. you have to be like that you know, twice bad. as good yeah. to, to get over those reservations. And so these things can't be ignored. They can't be phoned in. They're as much as part of the creative expression as the work itself. Yeah, you have the concept of hacking. Is the the word
0: is the, the vernacular? You know, words matter, and it came came out of um, you know computer software and yeah. and. Um, and then the term growth hacking to make a reference to something you said earlier. Um, I'm I'm wary of the concept of hacks because the people who hack things and if it's not repeatable, yeah, then it's really then it doesn't like to me that's part of what distinguishes something or someone who's able to be successful and you look at the most, you know, the most successful people and they repeat their successes yeah. over and sure, over. Sure, sure. Um, do you for the folks out there who are looking for quick fixes like do you throw them in the trash and then you talk about them or think about them you have written a book called perennial seller is that yeah. antithetical to hacking and or or there's some do you, would you take hacking out of hacking category and put it into like these are best practices or
1: help me yeah i mean as long as things. as long as you're not using hack as in terms of shortcut then it, if you're using hack as shortcut then it's a dangerous word if you're using hack as Creative, you know, creative way of doing something, uh, a way of combining this thing and that thing to create something new. Then I think it's very positive. There's just something in our culture where it's like people go like they want this frame, they want like step one, two, three, four, five, like as if that as if that would work, and if it would work, how quickly it would be exploited and used by everyone. Yeah. So I think what what I'm tra- what I try to do in my books is not create formula but to create sort of a set of principles that are always going to be true and that you can think about in lots of different situations and so I, I think it go to the go to the principles that undergird like an industry or a space or a career path that you're on don't look for shortcuts um, because it's like if you're already looking for the shortcuts and you're not you haven't even started, what does that say about when shit gets really hard? Yeah. You're gonna be like, done, and you're it, not gonna have what it takes. For sure, you're certainly not attracted to the verb. Yes, yeah, you have to actually like that it's hard. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think people are people want this like tried and tested formula, and it's never, not only is that never possible, but you wouldn't want it to be possible if it was. And by definition, if it was that easy or that
0: possible or just a series of steps that anyone could do, yeah. it would be wildly exploited and there would be no, no upside for you, no real upside for you. It would be like driving.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can learn how to drive. Well, like, congratulations. Yeah, nice job. Right, right. Chase Jarvis, he's been a photographer for all these years. He's built this company, also has his driver's license. <laughs> it's, like, it's not like, on the list of shit to yeah, do. Right, okay. it there doesn't you. go in the bio. Got it. Um,
0: so let's get tactical again okay. I think part of um, the stoic philosophy is like what are you actually going to do yeah. like what's the action yeah. that, that right. second step and is there you know there are some helpful frameworks in yeah. the book give us a couple of uh, a couple of frameworks for people to chew on and and, and again you this is a, a book that's dense enough that you're gonna want to get it this is not Thank the, you. this is not the
1: this is not the solution this this interview is not the solution to perennial seller but I mean, I, I'd like to, the book to leave people some questions to ask when they're starting. Like, I tried to re- create something that you could reread every time you're starting on a creative project. Mm-hmm. So the the first question that I think entrepreneurs and creatives forget all the time is like, who is this for? Because they're making it for themselves, yep. and that's not a big enough audience. Yep. Or they haven't thought. Like, like, I'll ask who this thing is for, and they'll go, "Everyone, smart people, you know, <laughs> Malcolm Gladwell fans, or whatever." Right. Yeah. So who is this for? Like. Do you actually know what your product is for? Or are you a solution in search of a problem, which is a very dangerous place to be. So yeah. who is this for, I think, is a very important question that I would tack, like, not just like, oh, yeah, I know, but like, actually, who are they? Where do they live? What do they do for a living? Um, and then what does your thing do? My editor said to me once, she's like, it's not what a book is, it's what a book does, right? What, is this, what does my project do for people? So Creative Live is like, a full toolkit for anyone trying to do basically any creative profession. That's very clear and obvious. And then because it does that, there's the chance that you have word of mouth if you can bring those customers in. Um, I think that's very important. Uh, On the marketing side, I want you to think about how crazy it is that anyone buys anything, right? Like, so, it's like, if you think about all the stuff that's free out there, like, take a book. So this book is where's the price? Is it on here? I think it's on the inside it's front. On the front. Cover. All right, so $26 US. I'm asking people to give me $26 and a week of their time for something they don't know what's in these pages. Yeah. Right? So one of the reasons I do interviews, I give tons of content away, I make videos, I excerpt it wild widely. Um, is because I know how crazy it is, like what I'm asking, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I just is. I just spoke at a conference that was full of writers yesterday and I had the publisher give away 250 copies because that's the exact community that I'm trying to reach. Yeah. And so it's like, chances are your product is the best possible advertisement for your product. And so I want you to give it away for free as much as possible. Yeah. I'm not saying work for free, and that, yeah. that is a dangerous thing people get taken advantage of, but who are the people that need to read this, or that need to experience it, or, or are gonna talk about it, yeah. and make sure that you've brought them through your system? Yeah. Uh, I think a sen- that's all marketing is, right? So people are like, "Oh, I figured out how to hack Facebook ads to get a real." It's like, have you ever bought this thing? Or have you ever bought something from a Facebook ad? You know. Uh, meanwhile, somebody gives you a book for your birthday, and then the next thing you know, you bought it for all your employees, right? So. Uh, re- like, understand what you're asking people when you're buying, and just how expensive it is, yeah. and make sure your marketing and your creative efforts are designed to make it as accessible as possible. And then the last big lesson I would give is like, your platform, right? Like, everyone wants a platform, but they don't want to put the work into it, and they want it now. And the best time to have made it was ten years ago, you know what I mean, <laughs> or five years ago, or right. yesterday. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, what's that thing about a tree? It's like the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. Second best time is right now. Yep. Like, don't be thinking just how to market this thing you have in front of you. Like, what are you going to need to market over the course of your career? If you, if you want to end up with a 1,000 true fans, how, how you are you getting number 640 and 642? You know, yeah. how are you doing that? And so from a, from a marketing perspective, I'm thinking about building a body of work thinking about building a reciprocal relationship with fans, thinking about owning that permission-based connection. Um, and if you're not doing that, you're at the mercy of newspapers and social media and uh, television. And if they decide, sorry, we've we changed We've that. already talked enough about uh, you know, online courses. We're not interested in promoting uh, another thing. They're like, okay, I guess I'm done. <laughs> yeah. right? And you don't want to be in that position. Yeah. Um,
0: I've noticed that you're
1: doing a lot of speaking. Yeah.
0: And certainly it's a, it's a great way to sell books, but it's also to be able to experience your rendition of the book and the ideas they're in. It's very compelling. And um, a lot of the folks that hire you to speak are companies. Yeah. And given the way that you've thought about it, and given that, like, well, between a third and a half of people who are watching here are inside of companies. Yeah. Um, you know, some are leaders, some are not. Doesn't matter. But talk to me about some of the, like the like qualities of let's let's maybe just go through a couple like team building or leadership or let's talk about leadership. So, you know, when you go to speak at these at these big companies, what are some things that are in your purvey per, perva- yeah. purview that
1: are really applicable to to modern leadership? One of the things that I think about as a speaker is like because I, I, I watch lots of talks and people are just like here's a bunch of facts and figures, here's, here's my pitch deck, let me run through it. I think we just learn by stories, right? Stories are basically it. So I wanna leave people with just a handful of stories or quotes that change how they think about what they do. Um, so if I was thinking about leadership, you know, some, something like that Eisenhower story we were talking about earlier, where it's like guy faces this incredible situation, overwhelming. He stops the chaos and the retreat and the, the despair and he says, what positive can we find in this? And then he goes out and goes, oh, actually, not only is there kind of a positive here, this is how we win. And and so I like to leave audiences with stories like that. And that's how, because that's how I learn personally. Yeah. And this goes to all but the things. But we're hardwired the, for narrative, too. Of course, right? of course. Yeah. And that goes to all the things we're talking about here, which is like, is what you're doing delivering value to people and I think stories are that. It's not I don't want to I don't want to tell stories about me because you might not like me, right? right. Yeah. Or you might go, "Okay, that's great, but what about X?" So I yeah. want to present sort of incontrovertible, undeniable, inspiring things that are going to that, that are going to stay with people. Um, You've heard, you know, you know the book Tell to Win? Yeah. Uh-huh. Is that Peter Gruber? Yep. Yeah.
0: And and you know, I think Peter is a studio executive, uh, you know, wildly successful billionaire dude.
1: Owns the Warriors. Yeah,
0: own, yeah. yeah He's partners with Chamath and the Warriors and yeah. But like, yeah. uh, the concept of telling to win or telling stories as a leader, like I felt like I've learned a lot about leadership now, sure. you know, running a company of 120 people or something. Um, is that a thing that you see people wildly deficient in?
1: Yeah, they're not, they're not good at capturing stories, they're not good at telling them, and then they're not looking for them, yeah. right? All having gotten to know a lot of professional and uh, really great NCAA sports teams, it's like you realize that the coaches all basically know the same amount about basketball or baseball, but it's what do they do in the difficult, What are they teaching? what are they teaching mindset-wise, what are they teaching approach-wise, And most of the time, they just get up in these meetings and tell stories. And so these coaches read incredible amounts of books. They study history. Um, uh, I I was at a conference a couple days ago, and Bill Walton spoke before me. And and after we were talking, he was telling me that John Wooden, in the course of four years, uh, when he played for me at UCLA, talked about the other team twice. And they lost both games, he said. So his, his job was to tell them about the game and about what it is to be a man or to be a teammate or to be a good person yeah. and and that's where stories, I think, come in um, and that, as a leader, you should be collecting those. I think one of the reasons um, politically what upsets me so much right now is that so many of the issues that we're upset about are really nonpartisan and will really be solved by sort of finding the connective tissue between people instead of fighting about this or that and the, the I think what we're missing with Obama not in office, again politics aside, is that he did the he followed for the most part the actual role of the president, which was to be the president of all people yeah. and to communicate to us yeah. what needed to be communicated in important or tragic or stressful or scary moments. Yeah, storytelling. Yeah, and that's the leader's job. You know, you're you're. Um, Regardless of political yeah. affiliation, right? Yeah. It's like the leader is there to communicate and to facilitate yeah. communication. Between so you think you're, yeah? Someone thinks their job as the CEO is to solve these problems, and actually your job you hired the people to solve the problems. Your job as a leader is to keep everyone in the boat going in the same direction, and a lot of that is storytelling and creating culture and things like that. What about?
0: Creativity and innovation inside of these places. How I, I see the yeah. very clear role of, of storytelling and leadership. What are some of the, the you know, have you, as you've been asked to speak inside of these Fortune 100 companies, what about creativity and innovation? Is there any insight there you can offer? Well, that,
1: that's one of the things I was thinking a lot about Perennial Seller. It's like no one gets that excited about making something that we're going to sell to some other company because we know it's garbage. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? They get excited about, being able to push themselves and do something like, I imagine what it would be like to be an engineer at Apple. It must be pretty. In, I'm sure it's incredibly stressful, and sometimes you want nothing more to quit than to quit. But just the the standards that you're forced to uphold and the opportunities that you have—that's what keeps people going um, more than the stock options. Like you know, Peter um, Peter Drucker would say, um, "Culture eats strategy." Right? So it's like uh, what standards are you putting in place? What story is at the heart of your company? Um, I think that that transcends all these things. Yeah, especially if, like you
0: need to be inspired to, to do your best work. Mm-hmm. There's the, the worker who can come in and sit down and do their stuff. But the role, and I think this is wildly misunderstood, it talks about, it, it touches on storytelling and so many things that have, have been a part of our conversation like the ability to motivate and Tony Robbins, it's energy. Like yeah. you really if you don't have energy to bring to something, yeah. you have basically no chance for success because everything requires energy. Yeah. And in you know, talk to me a little bit about the role that inspiration plays and you know we, we you can bring it again yeah. the, the story aspect. But when you have spoken and, and when you wrote perennial seller, what role did did inspiration play?
1: Well, it's like, on the one hand, inspiration is wildly overrated, because sure. people think it's like, you know, I just need to be inspired, right. I need this epiphany, it'll all yeah. happen. And on the other hand, it's very underrated in the sense that, like, again, if what you're trying to do is very uninspiring, who's gonna give their best to make that thing? So, yeah, what are your, what are your goals? What are you trying to accomplish as an organization? What are the standards that you hold yourself to? Um, these are, I mean, when I think about my own books, like I'm thinking, you know, I'm not trying to make a book to get more speaking gigs. That's a very uninspired, right? Nobody makes it. Sorry, the, I laughed. Nobody, yeah. but that's true, yeah. right? A lot of people do it for that reason. Nobody made, if, if your interest in football is that you think it will make you famous, you're not going to get through two-a-day practices in the summer, right? <laughs> right. You know, you're not going to. You're not going to rush to overcome a torn ACL. Um, If your if your interest in photography is that you saw other people making a lot of money on Instagram, there's going to be nothing to what you're making, right? There's not going to all the subtle things that you can't really see but you can feel are not going to be there. And so you've got to you've got to go into this for the right reasons. And I think one of the company's job one of the leaders, the job of the leaders of a company is to insist on and to sort of be the caretaker of those values. Um, I, I built a site uh, recently um, based on the Stoic stuff. We had a site, it's called Daily Stoic, and, and we made this one product and it, it was doing really well. And then so it's like, oh, we could do this. and this. It, it, like, it can You could see how easily it becomes like a cash grab, right? It's yeah. like, let's throw up some T-shirts. And, let's, and, and it's like, no. The, the reason this product is doing well is because it does something for people and they really liked it and it took a long time to make and it, yeah. we didn't cut any corners on it. And it's like, so my job as a leader is not to kill their bad ideas, but to go Here's the, here are the boundaries of what the acceptable ideas are and here are the principles that I'm insisting that, that be true for us to proceed. And then once that's constrained, now everyone's really focused not on necessarily what's going to make the most money, but yeah. what's going to be best, and then that's going to be most likely to last over the long term, and then again, make the most money. Yeah. But what are your principles if you don't know that you're in a bad spot? I'm going to touch on The Daily Stoic okay. before we hang it up. The Daily
0: Stoic, uh, incredible book, you and Steve put together, Steve Hanselman. Yeah. And um, I admit that I don't stay with it every day. but there isn't a day that when I touch the book, I don't get crazy value from it.
1: So talking- Do you get the email? I don't. Oh yeah, but so, so I write an email every day that's like unrelated. It's like another one, So, because not everyone carries a book around with them. Yeah, yeah. But it's my favorite thing to do. It's like I get to do one like, big thought of ancient philosophy every day in a really practical form. And then I built, it sort of blew me away. It built, it's a 100,000 person community at this point. The book sells like crazy. Um, and I hear from all these like senators and athletes and uh, celebrities and stuff that are that are like, hey, this I do this every morning, and it's just been this really incredible experience. But then, yeah, again, to go to what I was saying about the product. So we made this coin. It's like a coin you carry in your pocket. I have one actually. I have one in my wallet. I carry it every single day.
0: Yeah. See. So it's this memento morning and I don't. I'm not sitting on it right now because. It'll make noises and it'll sits in the oh. same pocket as my microphone pack, but it's in my wallet. It goes everywhere with me every day.
1: Oh, so, I love, I sent you one, You right? did, Okay, yes. good, good, good. Thank so, you. So my, it would be much easier to make a t-shirt or to make a course or, a di- you know, like, yeah, there are many digital, cheaper yeah. things yes. that would potentially have better margins, but then you have, it, it was like, no, I feel a responsibility to this space that's been very good to me, that's changed my life. I don't, I don't want to be the, the one that's poisoning the well. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I don't want to be the one that's turning this into something sleazy or scammy, and that's very important to me. And so my job as the leader is to inspire the people that are part of that thing that I've made to adhere to those standards. And if I fall down on the job, it would be, potentially lucrative in the short term, but very destructive in the long term. And so that's what I think about. Because, I mean, that's the the point of the coin too, which is like, there's a quote from Marcus. Hold it up for the camera there so they can see that. There's a quote from Marcus Aurelius on the back, and he's basically saying, you could leave life right now, let that determine what you do and say and think. And so, I think as a leader, that's a great way to think too. It's like, this could be the last time you talk to your people, this could be the last email that you write, this could be the last trip that you go on. Um, this could be your last time pulling into the driveway after a hard day at work. You know? So are you gonna do it right? What's gonna motivate you? What's, are, are, you gonna, are you gonna actually live and experience that moment? And if you're not, is that not very entitled? Like are you not betting that you'll have a thousand more of these mornings or whatever? Mm-hmm. And, and that's, I, I just don't wanna take that chance. Memento mori. Yeah, remember you will die. It's not the most inspiring thought at first, but actually I think it becomes profoundly inspiring if you think about it the other way. I think about how often I go into my wallet
0: either to like put a receipt away or take out a credit card right. or, and that it's always there. You can see, I mean, it's worn into my leather. And, um, and not only does it inspire me, but if I'm ever at a counter and I'm having a like, playful conversation yeah. with the person who's across from me, or I'm with a friend, and I have it. I I just hand it to them, and it's it always starts a fascinating conversation that leaves. I feel like, either if, if you're on the other side of the counter, I'm like, remember you're gonna yeah. die. Yeah, yeah.
1: Like
0: then then they'll like that will stick with them. Or if if it's on uh, with a friend or something, there's always an inspiring conversation that comes out of it. So
1: well, and look, that's obviously very cool for me creatively and and philosophically. But then just if if we were talking about something that wasn't so meaningful, at the same time, that's all the hallmarks of what you want when you're making something, which is that it becomes part of a discussion, it becomes part of people's lives, Um, it becomes something that they talk about to other people, that they recommend to other people. That's what, That's not only is that what you want because it's fulfilling, but that's what you want as a business, right? It's not like, I privately took this creative life class. And I'm really embarrassed about it. And I don't want anyone to know. It's like this thing changed me, yep. and I need it to up, change huh? you. Yeah. yeah.
0: Thank you so much. Congratulations amazing. on the most recent book, Perennial Seller by Ryan Holiday. He's got five others too. So it's a it's an amazing, um, I don't know, body of work that you you talked about building a body of work. I think you're you're. Well, on your way. You've put, published more books than everybody that I know, basically, besides maybe Seth Godin. Yeah. But um, congratulations. Thank you so much for being on the show. Keep inspiring us. What's the best place for people to stay in touch? It would be at Ryan Holiday, most yep. places. Yeah, and then just
1: ryanholiday.net. Thanks, bud. Thank you. Of course. Awesome.
0: All right, that about wraps it up. But before I let you go, I want to say A, a huge thank you, B, let you know how to find me. I'm basically at Chase Jarvis all over the internet on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, I'm very active on Snapchat. You guys should check it. If that's a platform that you enjoy, uh, check me out there, as well as all the other ones. It's a super important ask for you to share this also. Uh, subscribe via iTunes, SoundCloud, and or Stitcher. And most definitely, if you're willing to put in a little bit of extra juice, please leave a review on iTunes. That helps make our podcast more visible. Last place that you can check it out and, and get some additional value is in my newsletter, which is chasejarvis.com slash VIP. That is where I put content out before it hits my social platform. So that's sort of the insider track. Leave comments all over the internet for me. I will track them down and respond as best I can. And uh, again, huge thank you for listening to the podcast. And I'm looking forward to the next episode already. I hope you'll join me next time.